All right, we are returning to our friends in Corinth. So if your Bible still flops open to 1 Corinthians, we are returning to that area. So turn there if you have a Bible that has pages. If you've got an electronic version of that, go ahead and, and find 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And there's, there's much to learn from. Isn't it amazing that... You'll see this, right? I mean, those of you who have been through studies with us, if you're kind of new to the church, we, we tend to, to study through books of the Bible, uh, feeling like that's how God has best helped us by seeing his word most clearly. And we see it most clearly when we can sit in it for a while and just see all that God had placed in these words. And so we've studied through books of the Bible in the past where this, this book, we're going to make it all the way through 1 Corinthians when we just started late spring, took a break in the summer for our summer Bible jam. Now we're returning to these passages. So let me get a few of these thoughts before us, and and then we'll start to unpack them a bit. So we left off at about verse 10. We'd just gotten into the introduction of meeting these folks in Corinth. And we're going to jump in today to Paul's about to get down to business here, right? So he is, he's done some of the niceties. He's done some of the, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to gloss over that because it's very important that Paul was greeting and caring for these folks and introducing who he was to them. But we're going to turn a corner here and, and we're going to get into the life of the church. And there's some challenges in the life of the church. Not surprising. So look at verse 10, chapter 1. Chapter 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers, what, what I mean is that each one of you says, well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Paulos. I follow Cephas, and I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. All right, we're going to go a little bit further into this passage in just a moment. But I want us to catch what's going on in this opening moment. This is the opening of 1 Corinthians. So we are just seated to hear the music about to come from this orchestration. Now, if you've, if you've been to an orchestra, if you've been to hear a symphony, uh, There's some stuff that takes place in the beginning that might seem very insignificant, especially if you're not a musician, if you've never played in a group, then you won't catch some of what's going on. And that's kind of my MO. I'm coming rather ignorant into musical settings, always learning stuff. But I remember there was one particular 
symphony that Gina and I went to, I, I want to say it was in Nashville, that had 150 pieces in it. It was a, just an enormous uh, orchestra. As a matter of fact, not all of them could even fit on the stage. Some of them were off to the edges, off to the side in, in, in rooms right off the, the area there. And, and stuff is happening. If you've ever been to see an orchestra, stuff's happening, right? You got these folks that they're, they're coming in, they're bringing in their instruments. They got wood wind instruments and you've got your brass section that's coming in. Everybody's unpacking their stuff and they're sitting down in their chairs and they're, they're starting to screech and they're starting to make a little noise. And it, it's almost like uh, chaos in the beginning. There's just this chaos is happening and everybody's playing their own thing and random sounds are coming from this group and you're, you're wondering, okay, I'm hoping this is going to sound good at some point because right now it sounds like a mess. I mean, these guys practice or anything. And then there's this decisive moment that you don't realize how decisive this is unless you are playing in an orchestra. Everybody gets quiet and one instrument, I believe it's the oboe, plays one note. And then chaos seems to break out right again. Everybody's just going to play their instruments, going to blow their deal. And it sounds like, okay, that didn't sound really good. And maybe one more time, that same note is going to get played one more time. And everybody's going to do their little thing again. And then... The conductor's going to step up and going to take out his thing and, and there's going to be this silence and the orchestration is going to begin. And, and what gets overlooked in that moment was perhaps, perhaps the most significant moment was that single note that got played that brought everybody from their individual positions into one thing. Because right up until that moment, everybody who walked in and unpacked their stuff and sat down with their instruments, and you know, if you know these musicians, these are instruments that they've been playing for years. These things are part of their life. There's a relationship with this thing going on. They spend a lot of time with it, but it's tuned to something else when they come together. And what needs to happen, otherwise this will be the worst orchestra you've ever heard, is that one note needs to be provided to them so that they are all in tune with that one note. And you understand, if they were tuned to their their grandma's piano, because that's who they played with last, and this guy's tuned to his little group that he played with in practice the other day at the end of the week before he came together, and they all listened to the conductor and just began to play, no matter how talented these folks were, you would not enjoy that orchestration. It takes that one note to be provided for all of them to be able to come together and provide this incredible music that we're about to hear. And, and that's what Paul is providing at the beginning of Corinthians. Of all the individuality that is in this gathering of people, this first chapter and a half are going to provide the one note that everyone needs to listen carefully for and tune themselves to that note. 
right? Here's, here's a little thought about who Paul is in this moment, Ben Witherington. Ben Witherington, by the way, some of you would enjoy this, and I, I wish I'd remember the, the title of the book. I think it's A Day in the Life of Corinth. I think that's the title of it. But he's written a, a, an historical fiction book. Some, some of you guys are like, Keith, I'd love to read some of the books you recommend, but not going to happen. But maybe you like stories. Ben Witherington is a theologian who has written a historical narrative that's based in the town of Corinth during this time. So it's, it's a little bit of what life would have been like. Very helpful. If you want to get to know the Corinthians, that book is worth the read. It's small, and it's a story. It's, it's written like a narrative story. So it's got characters in it and a storyline to it. So look for Ben Witherington, A Day in the Life of Corinth, I think is what it's called. But this is what he says. He says, Paul was a pastor and a task theologian. And he wrote to meet specific needs to deal with specific problems and to encourage particular congregations. Some of his letters were written more for problem solving and others are more oriented toward encouraging progress in the faith. The Corinthian correspondence definitely falls into the former of these two categories. Paul is a problem solver in this book. And I just want to highlight something because something's going to happen here that if you're a problem solver by nature, you already know this, even if you haven't taken notes. Some people don't like you. And they don't like the way you operate. They don't like the way you feel. They don't like the way you sound. Because you feel the task at hand is to, as quickly as possible, analyze the problem and explain how to fix it. There, just, I'm, I'm one of those people, all right? So I know that as I'm engaging life, I can look at my audience and there are some people who are with me and some people who can't stand me in that moment. Because let's face it, some of you, you really don't want to fix anything. You just want to whine about what's going on, all right? Let's be honest. You people who don't like people like us, that's what your problem is. And so when we present the solution, you're like, no, no, no. It can't be that, number one. It's like, well, you haven't even thought about this. Yeah, I haven't thought about it. You're right. But I know that's not the solution. Oh, okay, great. All right, there's this sense here. Paul, he, he takes nine verses before he starts identifying and fixing the problem. So for those of you who don't care for fix-it people, get over it, right? It's in the Bible, Paul's a fix-it guy. That's where he's going here. But I want to take note of what he does here because it is classic. He jumps into a problem here immediately, and he points us to the solution. But it is such a grand solution. As a matter of fact, it's the solution to everything. It is the starting place to fix everything about life. And there's a lot to be fixed in Corinth. He's just going to jump into that from what's going on here. So, so here's his situation. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Now, there's all kinds of ways in Corinth that they don't agree. There's all kinds of issues and problems that they don't get along with. And he's just going to begin with one in particular that we're going to zero in on today, where they begin to say, hey, I follow this one. And, no, I follow that one. Well, I, no, I'm connected to this one over here. All right, so he starts there, but notice where he runs for a solution. He's going to run to one spot and install something that's very deeply theological. We'll unpack that next week. But here's where he runs, right? He just makes a quick mention of, hey, 
guys, don't get all weirded out about who's been involved in your life and what role they played. Now, who baptized you? I don't even know that I baptized any of you guys hardly at all, except for a couple of these guys here. And, and then he moves the conversation in verse 17. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. That's going to be another issue for them. Bless the cross of Christ. And this is where he's moving to the one note. Bless the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross. All right, we got a problem here. And there's going to be multiple problems. But let me run toward what fixes the problem. What fixes your problem is the word of the cross. That's where we're going to start, right? So if you will, everybody comes together. They've called the orchestra together. You've got all these folks in Corinth unpacking their instruments. They all sit down and begin to play, and they sound screechy, pitchy, out of tune. This, this isn't going to work well. And Paul sounds one note for everybody. The word of the cross. That note sounds a certain way. That note communicates certain things. And everybody is to get tuned into it. Whatever you came into the meeting, tuned to something else, Paul says, no, no, this isn't going to work. You're going to need to be tuned to this. Verse 18, to the word of the cross. And he begins to describe that. This word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the, the wisdom. I think you need to put quotes that Paul was talking to you. The wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. That's what God says. Hey, where's the, the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You know, Jews, they demand signs. Greek, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man. And the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why did God do all that that way? To silence the ability of human beings to boast about themselves. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, or 
wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except this one note. Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's become much more common in our age of the church to to see an element of this featured. We we become much more aware of theology that needs to be cross-centered or gospel-centered. Right, very helpful for us to pay attention to that's what's happening right here. At the beginning of the outset of everything Paul's going to say, he is going to sound a note that provides the center for everything else that exists. Now, be careful what you do with that because I, I, it seems like for some people, cross-centered and gospel-centered, what they mean by that is almost cross-exclusive and gospel-exclusive. Like, don't talk about anything else but that. But yet, if you follow Paul through Corinthians, he's going to meander into a lot of topics. And he doesn't always turn around and say, okay, now this topic, this is how this has to do with the cross, and this is how this has to do with the cross. He's going to talk about marriages and what works and what doesn't work in marriages. He's going to talk to you about how to have sex in marriages. He's going to talk about sexual immorality and what's acceptable, what's not in your physical practice and how you conduct yourself amongst other people. He's going to talk about attitudes in the church. He's going to talk about whether or not you're suing each other. He's going to talk about how to conduct a a time of gathering where you can celebrate communion. He's going to open up and unpack the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the various gifts that God distributes to the church so that they can relate to each other with power. So everything doesn't sound like, okay, so it's an exclusive presentation of the cross. That's, that's what every message is. Well, it, it's not, and that's, that's not exactly how you'd read the Bible either, right? You know, the, the, the Bible says the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Night after night, they pour forth speech. So for those who would like to hear some good preaching, tonight, just, just walk out and gaze up at the universe, and, and the existence of the universe will preach back to you. It will reveal the glory of God. But here's what I can pretty much promise you. It, it won't say anything about the cross necessarily, but it will reveal the glory of God as God's eternality reveals things about him that doesn't necessarily mention the cross or his omniscience that he knows everything doesn't necessarily mention the cross but but this is paul's starting place everything that he's going to say has to take its cue from this one note jesus christ and him crucified now listen that that is not only needs to be paul's mode of operation in life but it needs to be yours and mine that everything that you and I will do in our lives needs to be tuned into that reality. Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he did when he was crucified on our behalf and arose from the dead. Everything about our lives needs to be tuned into that one note before we play anything in this grand orchestration for the glory of God. Anything in this universe that's not interested in that note doesn't bring glory to God. Can I say it that way? Listen, I I know this. If you think through what I'm saying, it's going to make your world a little bit uncomfortable. 
because all around you are relatives, people, different personality types, and religions who want you to bless them and want you to license their viewpoint. However, their viewpoint doesn't listen for this note. And it plays its own song, tuned to its own thing. And it sounds in the ears of God, screechy, pitchy, and off. Because what God has done, he has tuned the creation to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That note defines everything that we understand about existence. So if somehow you and I are creating a life that is minimized, ignored, hasn't visited that note to take our cue from that, uh, there's no way to say our life is being lived for the glory of God. You, You can't play in God's orchestra if you don't Start with that note being what defines who we are and how we're going to play this thing. So question for us, because this is where Paul's going to end up landing, is, is what, are, what are you and I tuned to? What sits at the center of who you are as a person, as an individual, as a human being who's got a heartbeat, you've got personality, you've got goals and dreams, You've got things that you're known for. You walk in a room, people think certain things about you. You like that. Maybe you don't like that. You've got a reputation. You visit things from your past. You were a certain person in high school. You achieved certain things, right? You've got a resume that you kind of bring with you. Well, you know, what's sitting at the center of that? What what are you tuned to, right? At At some point, God gave you this instrument, for you to learn to play, this life to learn to live, and you tuned it to something. Your grandma's piano, somebody's tuning fork, a song you heard on the radio, you tuned it to something. And then you get around God and the orchestration that he's playing, and you might discover you're not in tune with God. And when you go to play your instrument, you're, the, you're like, you're an instrument that sticks out. It's like, ooh, ooh, every time the conductor starts and play a few notes and he stops, wait, this sounds, this doesn't sound right. This doesn't, that, that's what Paul's doing here. He said, hey, guys, this doesn't sound right. Wait, wait stop, stop. No, wait, I, 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 this is what I'm hearing. I'm hearing this screeching sound, this problematic sound here. Uh, it, it, it sounds like there's some people here who've got a real identity problem. That's what he identifies first. There are some people here who have an identity problem. So I want to unpack that a little bit for us. And I'm going to ask this theologian, Mr. Stephen Um, He's got a really good insight from this passage. But let me just highlight the thought of when personal identity becomes the defining note of our existence. And, and please don't think this is being preached about somebody across the room next to you or somebody else besides you. This is about you and me. So in verse 12 where he says, each one of you, I don't think he's exaggerating in this sense. What I mean is that each one of you, every last stinking one of you, says, well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow, I follow, I follow. So everybody in the room here can be incriminated in this verse. Because every one of us have got something that we identify with that we are in tune with. Every last one of us, right? So I wrote in your outline, 
Here are individuals that are clinging to something that they identify with, something that they value or uphold or define themselves by in such a way that it becomes a source of quarreling, division, and inability to be joined with others. We give notes out so you can take them home and read this stuff again. You should go back and read that paragraph. Now, the context for Paul is the church. These guys aren't playing well together. They're not getting along well together because they're not in tune to the same thing. But I could pick this up. I mean, I could turn this into a marriage conference right now, couldn't I? Because this is what marriage disharmony is about, too. It's about two people trying to do one thing by not playing the one note that makes them one. Instead, they're playing their individual notes. They've got an identity thing. All their life, they've got this instrument that they've built hours and hours of relationship time with and practice with and hung out with. And then they get married and they're tuned to something else. And this one's tuned to something else. And they just have strife and problems and disunity and can't get along and don't enjoy. Listen, the only way your marriage, your family, any relationship will work is if you individually abandon whatever you're attuned to. And listen for one note. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you don't tune your instrument to the sound of that note, you're never going to play well together with others. It'll be a problem in the church. It'll be a problem on your ride home today with whoever's in the car with you over where you're going to go eat for lunch, whether or not you're going to watch the Saints game, all kinds of issues, right? All right, now here's an extremely insightful, I'm going to try and explain it. It's a long quote worthy of a long read because this describes their issue in this category. Stephen Um says, they have divided themselves along stylistic and rhetorical lines. Who was the most eloquent? Who was the most impressive? Who had the most pizzazz? Despite Paul's teaching regarding security of identity in Christ, the Corinthians were trying to find their identity in union with another patron. Now hold on that word, patron. Because that word is extremely significant in the setting of Corinth. Remember, Corinth is a Roman colony. So it's made up of Roman citizens who have come out of a background of being Roman. Greek citizens who are in the land of Greece in that area. And a sprinkling, not a large group, of Jews who are in the midst as well. Here's how society functioned in that day. Roman society was very much a stratified society. It had classes to it, and, and you operated within your classes. And you might, and, and Rome allowed for this, for you to move up in class. You had a slave class. You had a different level of slave class. Uh, you had a poor person plebe kind of a class that didn't own much, wasn't influential. You, you had another strata above that. And you just went up and up until you had these elites these folks who were the movers and shakers and the respected people, they were the ones who created this patronage system that was present all over Rome. So what you would do is no matter where you were, you wanted to find somebody to associate your life with. 
Because that guy, he's a mover and a shaker. And he created a network of relationships. And so he created a, a means by which you had this kind of business. This guy over here has got this kind of business and that needs your kind of business. He was the guy who connected you. He was a guy who brought favor into your life. He was a guy who might lend you money if you were in trouble. He was a guy who could arrange for you to serve for a period of time if you got in debt and you needed to work that debt off. And if he was a kind patron, you would give him your business, you would go to him, you would look to him. So there were these networks within society where you associated your life with another person for the sake of your well-being. This was going to help you get ahead in life. This was going to further the things that you were interested in for you and your family. So that's the setting here. So when one, they were used to, in Corinth, you were used to dropping names. Everybody dropped names. Because you were part of somebody's network. And you'd mention him and you'd drop his name and it'd be good for business. That might alienate you from a few, but it'd get you in with others. So they were used to this, right? They brought this into the church. So this wasn't something weird for them to go, I'm a Paul, well, I'm of Apollos. I mean, they were used to that. That's how they live life. Now go on with Stephen. He says, they were looking for something that would give them ultimate meaning and enable them to be in a more privileged position than other people. Patronage is an attempt at self-validation by means of another person's success and status. In essence, they are thinking, I as a client will associate myself with a patron. The more elite, the more wealthy, the more upper class, the more honored my patron is by my association with that patron, I will also be honored. I will also be elevated. I will also be viewed as someone who is extremely important, valuable, worthy, and praiseworthy. Seeking validation in something outside of self is a very common phenomenon. People tend to attach themselves to individuals, to causes, to industries, and dreams that give them a vision of the world as they think it should be, right? Is this sounding like the way in which life gets done, right? You dream with the same people who dream your dreams, who love the things that you love, who validate the things that you validate, who prioritize the things that you prioritize, and you get around them because it's like a patronage system. Somehow my association with you will further what I identify with, with the things that I have as valuable. He says, there are identity attachments to schools, roles, jobs, etc. In the world of educational credentials, there's always a desire to inform people about our association with selective institutions and reputable scholars. Oftentimes, people may hear, I graduated from this institution, and I studied with this individual. And if anyone knows anything in this field, they'll know that he or she is one of the top five in this particular field. This happens everywhere. Why? Well, it sounds as though we are praising the institution, but in essence, we are praising our selves. The institution is our patron. We are in union with the name of our institution, relationships, items, products, services, and individuals. These things falsely promised people that they would develop one's identity. This was the issue of horizontal fractionalism, patronage for self 
validation. This is the reason we latch on to causes. They become our surrogate savior. We become fierce evangelists. This is so stinking true. We become fierce evangelists for political parties, diets. How many of y'all have discovered the ultimate diet and become an evangelist for it? Please. Those of us who don't care about what we eat, we don't care, okay? We don't care what you've discovered. We're garbage cans and we're fine. (laughs) Methods of parenting and education, etc. These things give us a sense of identity and purpose insofar as they make us different than or distinct from other people. Oh, that hurts. Isn't it horrible to stare the reality of who we really are in the mirror <laughs> and discover why do I do what I do? Why am I so loud in this category, so quiet of this, so promoting of that and so critical of that? Why? Might it be that you, you give yourself away? The things that you're high on are things that serve you and further you and elevate you and create a platform for you. When you're done decorating that thing up and quoting everybody who loves it too, you're in a better light, aren't you? And is that what I was doing all along? Trying to find a means for my identity to be validated to be important, to find a reason why I exist meaningfully in this world and why I'm significant and my life does matter. And this this is what I've created, a patronage system to help me feel better about my life. And listen, that works fine when you play a solo instrument. It doesn't work well when you have to play with others. Because they're not tuned to what you're tuned to. And it will become a source of disagreement and hostility and backbiting and looking down on one another. Because you are not in the superior patron group. My cause, whatever it may be, from diet to You know, isn't it funny? Schools are an interesting category in this area, especially if you're in Louisiana. People who are proud that they went to LSU. What are you really trying to say about yourself? Seriously, most guys, you know, they're not trying to say, yeah, you know, cutting edge CPA. Went to LSU. No, when you say you went to LSU, you're trying to give people an awareness of just how big of a party animal you are. I went to LSU. It's like, got a degree in drunkenness, you know? It's like, there's certain things about schools. Now, you wouldn't say that. It's like, I went to Harvard. Oh, bet you were drunk every day. You know, it's like, you just don't think that way. But we throw this stuff around because we're trying to associate ourselves with certain things. And so if you're amongst a group of class clowns and you want to raise your status as ultimate class clown, then going to LSU fits that, right? I mean, matter of fact, I was, I, was, I mean, I, I lived on fraternity row. Oh, yeah, man. Woo! We all bow down to you, dude. I bet you were hilarious. That, that's the group you want to be something in. 
But if that's not the group you want to be something, then you got to find something else to promote. But, but is this what we're up to? Is this what's defining the way in which we relate and our motives behind things? It's an interesting couple of insights here. Ben Witherington says, even though they were converted to a new religious orientation, the Corinthian Christians brought with them into the ecclesia, into the church, Many of the, listen, the primary social values gained over a life of living with a particular cultural orientation. Stop. Is that a surprising thing to any of us? That we've lived our lives tuned to something else all these years, and then we come into the church and, it's, and we sound screechy and out of tune. And, and listen, this is kind of weird. This is like the church turns around like, what's wrong with you? It's like, well, you know, I lived out there a long time. I learned how to do things through that system. And, and now I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to tune up here and, and live differently. Listen, don't be surprised. Right? That's why the Corinthians are, are a, they're a good group to study. Because you have people who come from a Roman background who are going to come into this church. And people who come from a Greek background who are going to come into this church. And people who come from a Jewish background who are going to come into this church. And they're all going to be required to play the same song together. But they have got a life of different influences inside their veins. And have you noticed stuff that's influenced you doesn't go away overnight? Now, I don't, don't just think in these categories. Think in, you know, if you were raised in a home and, and you're given to this anyway where, where, you know, everybody was afraid of everything. Everybody was, you know, everything was cautious. Everything was, oh, my gosh. You know, when the news, oh, there was, everything was alarming and dissettling. And you picked up on that. And so you kind of got that in your DNA now. And so you come into the church and everything can sound like, oh, 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 everything's scary. The whole world's scary. And you get next to somebody else who's lived in this household that was like adventurous, full speed ahead, running over stuff. And there's, there's things breaking all around them, but they're just going for it. Yeah, whoo. And they kind of do life that way. That, that's in you. And you come into this setting you're just kind of playing through some different stuff. Our, our culture has taught us a lot of things. Listen, before anybody came into the church, you were already raised in a black culture or a white culture. You, you think the day you stepped into the kingdom of God, that all got snapped, just like fixed. You got a heavenly perspective. You see it all biblically. You think? You think? No, absolutely not. That's not the way it happens. And so you and I are bringing all kinds of stuff, conservatism versus progressivism and political ideas and what really helps people and how do you help the down and out guy, right? We were raised in a culture and, and depending on what you tuned into nightly and what you've watched and what you've taken into yourself, you got a certain tone inside and you have tuned your life to certain things. Beware. Beware of how that tuning is serving you and furthering your agenda. John Piper says, people were beginning to polarize behind their favorite teacher. They isolated particular qualifications or strengths of their favorite teacher and began to brag about them. They elevated these characteristics to the point where they derived some sense of superiority 
from claiming this particular teacher as their own. And, and, and that is what we need to be paying attention to. Am I elevating the things that will make my identity superior to others? Is that what I'm after? Then this is what's at the heart of what Paul is going after here. And I want you to notice he quickly shifts to the thing that destroys that. He's going to launch a boast-seeking missile into this conversation now. So once this gets on the table and he says, hey, these are the issues, these are the troubles, this is why this is so hard for us, to be of the same judgment, to come together, the same mind, to accomplish, to play one song for the glory of God and not for ourselves. This is why this is so hard. How do you fix that, Paul? You launch a boast-destroying missile into the man-centeredness of how that gets framed. And he introduces us to what I call God-centered theology when he pulls us to the person and work of Christ at the cross, right? Go to verse 18 there. This is what he launches into with. The word of the cross, which, by the way, is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are saved, it's the power of God. Now, God's fingerprints and God's motives need to be clearly seen here. For it is written, I, assuming that I describes God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. God goes to war against certain things. And then there's this, this is the most mocking belittlement. Where is the, the wise, the scribe, the debater of the age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And this, we're going to unpack this next week, but just chew on this. For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. Isn't that interesting? You didn't come across God because you're so stinking smart. That's not how it happened. Now we'll unpack next week how it did happen. But that ain't how it happened. So to elevate man, to be impressed with man, God made sure that could not happen. That's what that verse is going to tell us. He talks about Jews and Greeks, what they're looking for. But, but then look how he shifts this. He shifts this into an issue of boasting. He says, you know, consider your calling, brothers. How'd you get here? You're not wise. You're not of noble birth. You're not impressive people. You're not strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Boast about what? Boast about what we have done. Boast about our identity. Boast about what makes us unique amongst others. What is about me and for me and centered on me. God has designed a salvation and a relationship with him that the first thing Paul wants to bring up is it's like a missile that blows up my ability to glory in me. And it transfers it, look at verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, 
boast in the Lord. So when you're done staring at what God has done in making you who you are, the only thing you're going to want to boast about, the only thing you'll want to boast about is what God has done. That's what gets installed right here. This is a key. This is the note that's being played so that the rest of Corinthians can be an orchestra that's going to sound a certain way. This this is not something for us to skip over quickly. Now, here's some amazing good news in this. Because there's a situation that has existed since Eden that has changed us. It's changed our orientation. It's changed our identity. It happened in the garden. I wrote this somewhere in your outline. It says, at the center of the gospel story of Scripture lies a humanity that is broken, needy, and powerless to self-remedy, powerless to fix ourselves. All the problems, all the in over our heads, we are. We're in over our heads. And we are powerless to cure what ails us. No self-determination, no education. Get your degree from wherever. You cannot fix what is broken in us. None of us can. And a humanity that finds itself hostile to the righteousness of God and his right to rule his creation. We hate that idea. There's something in us that is hostile to the idea that God would take up a place to determine the outcome of our life and what we would live for. Yet, we are a humanity that is very alive to itself. This is a dilemma. We are broken and needy beyond measure, but we are very alive unto ourselves. Right now, I use this first. I'm just a reference that we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Everybody in mankind is in that description. So this strange description, we are dead, yet we're walking, following, living in the passions of our flesh, and carrying out the desires of our body and our minds. We are dead in one sense, but we are alive to the wrong thing in another. We are out of tune with God, but we are playing our instrument, man. And we are tuned to something. And see, this is the great curse of the Garden of Eden. And nobody escapes. The promise of the devil was a massive lie, and it was upside down. Man was tuned to God. That's, that's what the, the note was God himself. That's what he, his instrument was tuned to God. Until the devil came along and said, how about you tune off this tree over here? How about you just... Just come over here and listen to this for a second and tune yourself to this tree. The knowledge of good and evil. And he lies and bribes man. And what ends up happening with man, man was playing, connected to the right note, putting him in harmony with all of creation. Everything sang to the glory of God. The plants, the animals, the attitudes, everything did. 
until man got out of tune with God and began to find his own identity in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, everything is no longer harmonious, right? Can you imagine if Eden was an orchestra and you and I sat down to listen to the symphony of Eden? Can you even imagine what that would sound like? Every instrument that God created playing exactly the way and in tune with him for his glory. Can't you imagine what that would sound like for us to take in? And then just fast forward a couple of minutes to the moment that Adam and Eve tuned to the tree. And in that moment, everything began to be this horrible, screeching, sounding, out of tune, discordant moment where it sounded horrible. Now, And then it's almost like, okay, now you guys go along and play and get along with each other, all right? Knowing full well, you are never going to fix that. You will never get every human being to harmonize again until the word of the cross. The person and work of Christ is the note that we now tuned to in our lives and it transforms everything about us and listen here here's the problem in that garden situation it wasn't as though we went silent we still play our instruments it wasn't as though we stopped to live we are still alive so how are we going to fix this How, how do we fix our problem because our problem is I am my biggest problem. You understand if God fixed all of you, we would still have a problem. Do you understand that? Do I understand that? If God fixed everybody in your life, you do understand you still wouldn't get along with them. They get along with each other, but you wouldn't get along with them. Because the problem is me. I, I'm, I'm alive to me. That's the problem. I'm alive to me. I came alive to me. I retune my instrument. I play my own song. I don't get along. And I, and I want everybody else to adjust all their instruments to play my tune in harmony with me. How do you fix that? Kill the guy. That's how you fix it. I'm serious. I'm glad there's no orchestra leaders who are like, hey, you're out of tune. (laughs) Who's next? (laughs) You over there, violist. If I hear that one more time, you're dead. Um, But that is God's remedy. And and by the way, it's, it's it's a unique, only this way can be offered to you remedy. God kills the individual. But strangely kills them in such a way to give them life. Now just think for a second before I read these passages. Can you think of anything in this universe that can do that for you? Listen, there's lots of 
counseling out there. There's lots of programs you can be a part of. There's lots of ideologies and philosophies and ways of approaching life. The Greeks and the Romans had a lot of that, and that's kind of creeping into the church here as well. There's a lot of stuff out there. But all of it will basically attempt to take you in your self-inward-focused live form and reshape you. It won't kill you. It will keep you alive. If you understand life biblically, that's going to be a problem, isn't it? If you and I have just picked up religion as some form of remold me, reshape me, help me get adjusted a little bit, but I stay alive, that's going to be a massive problem. You are a person still in tune to the tree trying to imitate God. That doesn't work. You're, you're going to have to experience this death, right? Romans chapter 6, in Corinthians, you can turn back just a few pages. Listen, listen to this. This is, this is radically helpful. Paul says to the Romans, what, what shall we say then? Verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? See, his death, the word of the cross, the person and work of Jesus Christ, what Paul sounds that note, that note is the starting note. You're going to have to die with Christ. It's no other remedy. But here's the good news. We were buried, verse 4, therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So this is the only deal offered to humanity like this ever that has the ability to both kill us and give us life all at the same time. And the only way you ever or I will ever be separated from being tuned to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, tuned into my own self, self-centered, is I'm going to have to die. And in God's plan, that's exactly what he has planned. And then I get to walk in newness of life, which he describes in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Right? So you get to die and come alive. Only through the word of the cross. That's the only means that this can happen. This is, this is not religious reform. This is, this is a death that has life in it. 
And it's only available through the cross. Remember Galatians saying this? We all know these verses, but they're just awesome verses. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Right? So something's happened. I, I, I'm dead, yet I'm alive. I, I, there's, a, there's been a death, but there is a life now. And I am a different person than who I once was. Galatians 6, 14, one last verse. Paul says, but far, far be it from me to boast, this is that anti-boasting missile, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Listen, when, Eric, you can come back up here. When, when the garden caved in, I got in tune with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I I got in tune. I I began to draw life from something else outside of, instead of, in place of God. And according to Galatians, my, my only hope that I will ever be severed from that is the cross. Because through the cross... I get crucified to the world and the world gets crucified to me. I get separated from that only by the cross. Does anybody, there is no religion anywhere that offers you a means of separating yourself from that tree. You will be forever in tuned to something outside of God in this created realm. If the cross had never happened, and if you and I have not put our faith there, it transforms everything about us. Now, this obvious has implications for the Corinthians, right? But so it does for us as well. Because God has called us to something, right? The last part of your outline there, I said, you come to this great symphony of God's glory. God is playing and has arranged an incredible orchestration, the sounds of his glory filling his creation. But you and I have come tuned to your favorite identity issue. That's what we've gotten used to. That's what we've taken shelter in. That's what our ambitions have been about. That's where we draw our comfort. That's where we feel secure. That's what's familiar to us. We came in this way. It's very tempting for us to stay loyal to those things. We are all assembled, and the all-tuning note is sounded, the great note to which I must tune my life, the, the word of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a phrase that contains a lot of stuff in it, but it's a headline that I must tune to And this orients my life around the death of me centered on me and the newness of life in the spirit. So if anything Paul is going to suggest or talk about to the Corinthians is going to happen, if they're going to play in the band in the future, whether it comes to marriage or sexual immorality or how they relate to one another, how they serve, any of those areas, the first thing that has to happen is they're going to have to tune themselves. And we're going to find out next week that you actually get tuned by God because you and I can't tune ourselves either.
So ponder with me this morning. This is what I want us to consider. Let's stand up together. Lord, when we walked in here this morning, we may not have used the same words the Corinthians were using. I'm of Paul or Apollos. We may not be real familiar with using that phrase for whatever it is that we're of. But Lord, the reality of our lives screams sometimes that the trouble, the difficulties, the brokenness, the lack of relationship, disconnect, conflicts are very often because I am of fill in the blank. I'm of something that is determining the good of my life. I have a patron who promises life to me who offers to make it good, to offers to provide if things go bad, offers me a position, offers me influence before others. I've got a patron. But it's a divisive patron. It divides me from, God, your purpose. It divides me from bringing glory to you. It steals glory. It seeks to give me a means of boasting It breaks relationships. It pulls us apart. So Lord, would you help us this morning? Lord, we've got a blank to fill in. I'm of what? Right now, Lord, would you just travel in this room into our hearts? Remind us of what we freaked out about this week. Remind us of what we're afraid of. Remind us of the the angry moment where we rip somebody's head open. Accusing, complaining. God, these things are revealing something to us. I am of what? What am I of? What am I identified with? What What have I based my life's existence and good on that when it gets threatened, I get violent? That when it's not happening, I get depressed. Lord, here's the reality, and I hope you'll help each of us with this. To be loyal to that, to be tuned to that, is to be out of tune with you. Lord, there's just no way. We just can't play in the band for the glory of God when we are tuned to this rival identity, this thing, this other tree, this source that we're looking to. So, Lord, this morning, would you give us some grace and mercy here as we are gathered? Because, Lord, I believe many of us would like to sever some ties with these issues of identity. When we brought them with us, and they're a struggle, and they've been with us since childhood, maybe. But God, we want to play in your orchestra, God. 
We want the notes of our lives to proclaim the glory of our God. We want to be all that you've called us to be. So, so Lord, would you bring about a death this morning that leads us into a life that you have for us? Would you do that, Lord? Would you sever us from these things? God, we, we, we're listening. God, we're listening for the hope and the power of this one note, Jesus Christ and him crucified and our death with him and our new life from him by the Spirit. Lord, we're listening for that note. God, tune our lives. Crucify us to this world and this world to us. Lord, separate us. God, break partnerships and allegiances and loyalties that are in our hearts, things that we have grown comfortable with. God, this morning, would you you make us willing for death to operate in that sphere? in that place. Or maybe for some here, this is not the first time they're hearing this. And so, Lord, maybe this is a good jump-off moment for them. God, would you embolden some to say, yeah, yeah, this morning, God, by faith, I'm just receiving something from you this morning. Severing ties with that, my loyalties to that. God, put an end. God, tune me. Tune me, Lord. Maybe for some here, this is the first time they're coming face to face with a misplaced loyalty and an identity apart from you that's more about them. Well, maybe this is the first handshake moment. God, what do you do when you first introduce us to these things? Many of us, Go back years. God, would you make this moment of revelation life-altering? God, some who are laboring, brokenness all around, broken relationships, a mess in the rearview mirror. This morning, an awareness how they have so sought to have an identity apart from your purpose for them. God, let this be life transforming. Let this introduction create awareness for the future. God, let it create a transference of faith. Lord, may they listen for this one note. Lord, we want to be defined by Jesus Christ and him crucified what he has done for us and to us. We want our lives to be tuned by that, Lord. God, I pray for individuals that are here this morning that that are in the midst of conflict, relational disharmony, husbands and wives, extended family members who no longer can get in the same room, broken friendships where there's been refusal for mending. God, would you help us see these these things, these disagreements, this disharmony, Lord, it is quite often our 
pursuit of identity apart from you that fosters that, that fuels that. Oh, Lord, would you help the broken relationships in this room to realize no one's called to play my tune. And I'm not called to play my tune. I'm called to be tuned to God. My spouse is called to be tuned to God, to the word of the cross, to the reconciliating purposes of God. That's my song. Lord, there's healing in that reality. Lord, there's forgiveness in broken relationships. There's restoration. Lord, would you help us move forward the way Paul wants these Corinthians to move forward? God, let us move forward from our fractured relationships into wholeness of relationships because you've retuned our hearts to the word of the cross. Now we thank you. We thank you for the wisdom of your word. There's, there's nothing else available to us in this world that can kill us and give us life all at the same time. And Lord, next week, I, I pray for any who are here. But Lord, let me, just, let me just conclude with praying. Lord, this sound cannot fade from us. Lord, that note needs to be heard. It is the central note. It is the defining note of our existence. Lord, let us not move from this place this morning and move away from that note. Let us hear it, Lord. It will tell us when our life is out of tune. So let that be. Let this be the note that tunes everything for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I have a sense there are some of you here who... Maybe you've never come to the place where you have, have abandoned your own identity and fully surrendered your life to Christ. This, this verse is going to talk about you next week, so I want you to come back next week and I want you to be prepared to hear it. it it's a sobering verse. It's a sobering verse because there's going to be two sets of people in this verse. And some who have looked on to this massively important word and called it foolishness and some who have been saved by it. And there are two sets of people. And you're going to need to figure out which group am I in. But, but I don't want you to do this in some small, insignificant way. So if this morning God is stirring something in you, come back next week and think hard. Because what you are going to be asked to do is to give away your identity and receive someone else's life. You sure you want to do that? Because there's a, perhaps a number of Christians that are here who say they did that, but you keep living like you haven't. So I just want to tell anybody, if you're, if you're thinking about doing that, think hard. It's a massive thing to give away your identity and to receive somebody else's. It's a massive thing. Don't do that lightly because it won't mean anything to you. But think about it this week and come back next week. Amen? I bless you guys. See you all next week.